Welcome to the Shida Kama Extractive Podcast. My guest today is Dr. Kwasi Ampofo. Kwasi is the head of metals and mining at Bloomberg NEF and a board member of Amira Global. His work currently focuses on opportunities for metals in the energy transition industry. He completed his PhD in mineral economics at the University of Queensland in Australia, lives in London, and is of Ghanaian origin. Kwasi, welcome to the Shila Kama Extractive Podcast. Thank you, Shila, for having me. That's lovely. So I wonder whether you can just briefly define the concept of um, um, you know, transition to green energy and, and why this is important in mineral-rich economies. Thank you. So when we talk about transition, it's really about um, moving away. I mean, in broad terms, transition is moving away from something which you do now into something which you are yet to do. So it's really about the old way of doing things, giving way to the new things. And within the context of energy transition, when we talk about this, what we are simply referring to is the fact that um, historically we've relied on um fossil fuel generated energy sources. And when we refer to um, fossil fuel, these are predominantly sources of energy that when burnt or when, um, <clears throat> when combusted, it emits carbon or associated gases into the atmosphere. And what scientists have come to conclusion is that uh, these carbon emissions are not healthy for the environment. And if we do not change or provide alternatives to our energy generation, that would limit the emissions of these carbon, then we might look at a scenario where by mid-decade and beyond, the earth would be very, very difficult and probably not habitable for all of us. So what has been the response by governments, individuals, companies, et cetera? So then the conclusion is that we need to look at alternative sources of energy, which would not require the burning or the combustion of fossil fuels. So out of that came alternatives such as solar, alternatives such as wind, alternatives such as hydrogen, and alternatives such as batteries for um, the mobility or transport industry. But then to your key question as to what it means to the minerals industry, I think it's quite simple, right? So when you take a car, for instance, or a power plant, for instance, to power these technologies, you need oil, gas, or coal. On the other hand, when you take wind, solar, or batteries, to build these technologies, you need metals. You need metals like copper, you need metals like lithium, you need metals like steel, you need metals like um, manganese, you need metals like nickel, and the list goes on and on and on and on and on. So today, if you are looking at the current energy sector and you consider Saudi Arabia as a key country simply because of its role it plays in oil production, then certainly if we are switching to zero carbon technologies where metals and mining will provide the key bedrock for these technologies, then obviously the countries that produce these minerals could potentially become the Saudi Arabia of the energy transition from a minerals perspective. That's fantastic. So you, you've said uh, a lot uh, and, and very useful uh, for purposes of 
providing context. Now, for you and I who have uh, are involved in either the mining industry or the economics of minerals and fossil fuels, we, we understand what you mean when you say they could be the Saudi Arabia. But I, I doubt every Shilakama extractive podcast follower can provide that context. What do you mean by can become the Saudi? What has Saudi become? Which are mineral rich countries, but rich in critical minerals could become? What has happened? I think in simple terms, um, if, I, if you ask me to tell you in one word, I would say money. But obviously there's more to money. Um, there's more to that than just the money. So it's really about the revenues a country can generate from selling these um, products that are desperately needed for the energy sector. So Saudi Arabia obviously has been able to transform its economy as a result of its, um, its, its role it plays in the oil industry. So that is one. Also, the second one, which is also a very important part, is the quite recently, if you look at the geopolitics of the world, recently we've seen um, President um, Joe Biden, the president of the United States, visit Saudi Arabia. And the key topic of discussion is for the country to pump more oil in order to curb inflation, which has become a global problem. So certainly beyond just being able to generate revenues to support development in mineral rich countries, it's also about being able to play a massive role in geopolitics, particularly within the context of energy security. And I think these are the two things that Saudi Arabia represents now. And whoever manages to dominate the energy transition from a mineral perspective could also play a similar or even much more advanced role. Right. So really, it can change the financial fortunes of these countries, but it can also make them suddenly very important in the uh, geopolitical balance of power. Uh, because the point you're making is that all of a sudden, because uh, of the need to cap inflation, the president of the United States find it necessary to go and meet the Saudi monarch in order to try somehow to contain uh, the challenges that come with uh, inflation, both in his country and others. So, so geopolitics then become quite big, but is it not also true, Kwasi, to acknowledge that it, the transition to cleaner source of energy and the role of minerals isn't just about change of fortunes. Is it not also about really rethinking the industrial order? And, and so it's not just a, a, a case of technology. It's a case of how will we industrialize? How do we see ourselves continuing the lifestyles that we have become accustomed to as mankind while at the same time doing less harm. Isn't that a major shift also that minerals can potentially contribute towards? Absolutely. And um, quite a few weeks ago, Bloomberg NEF, where I work, published its major flagship report on the, on the long-term electric vehicle outlook. In other words, how the transport industry will look like in the next 20 years. And I think Historically, we've talked about the fact that um, electrifying transport will be one of the major solutions to reducing mobility emissions. But then over the last few years, what we've realized is that um, a key factor that could actually contribute to reducing emissions in the mobility sector 
is government investing in public um, transport infrastructure? And I know that could potentially sound like, I know probably a few of your listeners will be rolling their eyes, if not many, that how does public transport correlate with emissions reduction? And it's simply because um, if you invest in, let's say, more buses or more trains, think about the amount of people one bus can carry and the amount of um, of cars, regardless of whether it's a combustion engine or electric vehicle, that can be um, taken off the road as a result of the availability and the convenience of public transport. So like you rightly mentioned, it's really, really gonna come down to lifestyle. And that is just for the mobility sector. Similarly, in the energy sector as well, I think research has also proven that um, a, key, a key determinant of our ability to reach an zero future by mid-decade would also center on being able to efficiently use the energy we currently produce. So beyond just generating from greener sources, it also matters that certain lifestyle changes, being efficient in what we do, and investment in alternative means of transport, like public um, public transport and even walking spaces and bicycle lanes could make a big difference. So you're certainly right. It would change our lifestyles. Back to industrialization, which you talked about earlier, that is absolutely right. Energy is the bedrock for every industry globally, be it you're producing cement, be it you're producing um, cars, be it you're producing whatever you're producing, there is direct correlation between your energy consumption and how industrialized are countries, and there's no two ways about it. So certainly as we transition to cleaner sources, this would also give industry a chance to refresh in, in terms of which countries produce which, what, which countries produce this, it will give industrialization or industries a point, a turning point to refresh and also really um, do things better potentially, or which countries become the industrialized one as well. True. So yeah, you're right. Uh, mass transit would not only reduce uh, energy consumption in the transport space, but of course it would also help with urbanization where we know in Africa and elsewhere, the world is increasingly becoming urban and the urban spaces are crowded. And one of the major sources of this crowding is uh, you know, the use of private cars and uh, the use of roads to go from uh, home to our places of work and mass transit could uh, potentially uh, reduce that burden on uh, both uh, evidence infrastructure, but also on, uh, you know, the environment uh, through emissions. I want to uh, pick your brains on the flip side of the potential beneficial impact of rising demand for critical minerals on resource endowed countries to the impact of the lack of minerals in industrialized countries that must now contemplate um, transition to green energy. What do you think uh, is the e potential impact on the economic momentum of those countries in the event that say the EU or the US for that matter might not be able to lay their hands on adequate supplies of critical minerals? I think, um, first of all, there should be countries to complement each other. So where countries have strength, 
that strength to flow to countries that have witnessed weakness in one part and where other countries have strengthened, that strength should flow to other countries where they also have weakness in other parts of the value chain, right? And that also relates to um, the topic we are, we are discussing. And I would use battery as an example in this case, right? So currently, if you look at the global electric vehicle industry, there are about three main regions that are dominating. So Europe, America, and China in terms of demand. But then what we've seen is that outside China, most other economies that are high on the electric vehicle value chain have low critical minerals available, right? And then countries where you have those critical materials available, like, um, like Africa, African countries, South American countries, and Southeast Asia, we tend to see very low electric vehicle activity going on there. And I think this is where the osmosis or diffusion that I mentioned earlier can come to play, right? So African countries see this as an opportunity to move downstream further in the value chain in order to retain the wealth within the continent. This is a new industry, Shela. This is an industry that the starting, the starting whistle has just gone off. There are no winners yet in the electric vehicle industry. So I feel that countries that produce these minerals, if you're looking at it within the lens of Africa, have an opportunity to really go ahead because you have an advantage, right? Not many countries, not many economies will start a race and they already have the critical raw materials required to industrialize or to build the factories or to build the manufacturing base that industry requires. So I think African countries within this contest already have what it takes at the starting line. Now, what could potentially happen with economies in the European Union and specifically, as you rightly mentioned, the United States is that um, they would have to come down to the global south to look for these minerals because these are very, very difficult to find in the countries that I've already mentioned. And what could happen is that there are two scenarios that could play out, right? Either African countries or South American countries or Southeast Asian countries will just repeat the old model, which has been practiced over the last 100 years, where these countries come in, extract the minerals, and they get a bigger chunk of the value. And I come from Ghana, and we see that happen in the cocoa sector a lot, where cocoa is exported from Ghana and Ivory Coast, 60% of global production and then tapping the Switzerland to be processed into chocolate, which is the high value item. So what African countries can do is that um, this time they decide to invest in their local manufacturing and industrialization base to refine these into finished product and then sell them to the countries that produce these electrical vehicles. And ultimately even start producing these electrical vehicles here and have the global North become the consumers of these um, products. So I think ultimately it's going to rejig a lot of things. The EU, America, and China are miles ahead in terms of what their strategies should look like. But then I think that countries that I've mentioned, or these regions that I've mentioned, need to put in the effort to ensure that this time it will be different from what it has been the last hundred years. Yeah, it is. It is uh, actually a very uh, important point that you make because if you look at it in terms of the world. Uh, adopting a new industrial development model, which is uh, climate smart, which is green and environmentally friendly. You could argue we are all on a level playing field now. If you look at it in terms of uh, budding technologies that have not been scaled up, 
whether it is uh, e-vehicles or you know the docking stations where you charge your batteries, you know nobody has scaled this up. So really, the the opportunity for countries to position themselves to lead makes the field wide open. Uh, wherein, if we were continuing the new order, uh, the global south would still be following the leader. But in a space in which everybody's is at the starting point, I can't think of a better opportunity uh, for emerging market countries to capitalize on than this moment. So uh, fingers crossed, let's hope that there is enough wisdom, political will and ingenuity to be able to see that off. What we know is this, that in 2014, the EU launched what it called the raw materials strategy. And uh, more recently, it classified about 30 minerals as critical to its own industrial development. So you could say in this sense, the Europeans are, are somewhat more alert uh, and uh, perhaps uh, more pragmatic about their own needs. But the question is, is this just a case of uh, the Europeans being pragmatic and looking forward, or is there a genuine sense of panic that there is a potential defining moment in which Europe uh, may play second fiddle to other economic blocks? Yeah, so um, I think that, uh, so you talk about 2014, and this is a very important year. Um, so let's look at certain timelines. And once again, let's use electric vehicles because it's the most advanced um, in addition to solar in terms of these um, technologies that could help us decarbonize. So the first electric vehicle that used lithium-ion battery technology was Tesla Roaster, and that was launched in 2010. And in four years, the EU launched strategy. So I would not say it's panic button because in reality, if we are looking at the numbers, the EV revolution's biggest turning point actually occurred in 2020, where we saw the scale tip and demand started growing significantly as a result of a lot of external factors, which policy is one of them, right? So in reality, that policy you make mention of started six years earlier than the tipping point of the EV industry and the time when people realized that, oh my God, we need critical materials in order to ensure that we meet demand from all these batteries, right? So I would lean towards calling that pragmatic rather than the panic button. So that the implementation of how to get access to these critical materials has not been as ambitious as the policy that was enacted a couple of years ago. So yes, we are going to see more of these things. And then it goes back to an earlier point I made that um, it's just that um, you will see the strength flow to countries with weakness and countries that have weaknesses in one point, you will see them gravitate towards countries with strength in order to ensure that they attain equilibrium, but it would not be balanced. So EU has already identified a need that we've got all these gigafactories in Germany, in Poland, in Czech Republic, everywhere in Europe, but we do not have minerals. And they go shopping and like, who do we contact? Africa. First of all, there's an proximity advantage. Currently they depend on China to get the raw materials that they need for their batteries, right? And Sheila, if you look at the global map, China, first of all, get those materials from Africa or Australia, and then they ship them to China to process them into intermediary products. And then they end up also shipping those intermediary products to Europe. 
So imagine Europe can cut off China from that supply chain and then deal directly with Africa for beads or intermediary products. You see what it means for the emissions associated with that transportation alone. You've managed to save yourself quite a number of emissions. And given the fact that Europe is about to launch what they call a battery passport, where everything, including the emissions associated with battery production, would be made available. And if your emissions goes beyond a certain threshold, you face a risk of not being able to sell in European countries. So given that sort of mandate, it becomes important for the EU to look at supply chains that cut their emissions significantly and Africa is one potential candidate. So that is number one. Number two, I made mention of the fact that um, these materials go to China and China end up shipping them to Europe. So that's a geopolitical dimension there, right? Currently, Europe is reeling from its reliance of um, Russia for gas to power its homes and industries. And I think if Europe, whichever way Europe comes out of this crisis, the key lesson learned is that we cannot depend on one country for our energy sources again. And as it stands now, if you narrow it down to the battery industry, it depends on China for pretty much all its battery materials. So diversification could potentially bring Europe to Africa as well. So if you take even these two factors, Europe is seriously considering Africa beyond just that 2014 strategy. A few years, a few weeks ago, the European Union um, was in Namibia to organize a workshop as to how they can work with African countries and companies to ensure that they are able to move downstream in their critical minerals so Europe can be the potential buyer. So there's a lot going on based on these scenarios that I've talked about. And it would only get worse or it would only get better depending on where you sit on the value chain. Absolutely. So uh, your comments are very intriguing to me uh, for, for two reasons. First of all, you make reference to supply chain networks. And, and I think this is one of the areas in which countries that are well endowed with mineral resources can really make their mark. And that is to change the current global structure of supply chains, both in the mining space, but also in the metal fabrication space, and then in the making of component parts. Because there, there's a lot of money to be made. There's a huge amount of jobs. There's you know, significant level of skills to be transferred. And if countries think well, how they can leverage what seems now to be de facto a level playing field where everybody uh, is starting relatively at the same level. So, so I agree with you fully. Supply chain management globally will be key to who the losers are and the winners. But there's something else. You see, I think Europe, uh, because of heightened uh, public opinion and activism, struggles with purely industrial development policies and responding to uh, civil society voice in terms of being responsible and cleaning the environment. And I think the e-passport uh, in terms of uh, carbon emissions is a case in point. The truth of the matter is on face value, it looks like the right thing to do, but I wonder whether Europe is not risking cutting her nose to spite her face here. Because in a space in which you have more 
demand than supply. This good will shop around. These appliances that will be subject to this uh, emissions passport and the standards may well find their place elsewhere. And in that case, Europe and not the sellers would stand to lose. And I wonder whether, to your point, the lessons from Russia, in addition, don't rely on one supply, uh, is not that don't get ahead of yourself like Germany. Shut your coal fire stations only to open them up because you are under pressure from uh, civil society organizations, but actually your energy mix is not that robust. This is my general take, and I, I'd be interested to, to hear your thoughts on this uh, particular latter uh, observation, Kwasi. Yeah, um, that's a really great point here. And um, I think that whenever I get to talk to um, miners or policymakers, I always make this comment that, um, number one, the route when at zero world would pass through a mine, like it would go through a mining. In, in other words, the materials that would ensure that we are able to decarbonize our energy sources would require mining. But first, Sheila, the mining industry needs to decarbonize or needs to clean its supply chains. So I think um, the, the, the truth of the matter is ultimately, maybe not today, but then ultimately, I think when, when the heat is off the oil and gas, or let's say the oil industry, it's going to turn onto the mining industry and there's going to be key questions as to how these resources that will be needed for the energy transition, how they are extracted. Is it, is it, um, is it, is it protecting the environment? Is it, um, is it ensuring that the communities that these resources are extracted is, is not causing any harm among other factors. So all these things need to be addressed or sooner than later, it's going to cause problems for the industry. And I think the second one, which I think is very important, is the fact that um, when Europe, when Europe um, coughs, the world catches a cold. And I always say this um, using what happened if you look at the DRC and cobalt as an example, right? A couple of years ago, cobalt have been in mobile phones for only God knows how long as, in, as part of the batteries, right? But then quite recently, when we saw an Amnesty International report, and it's not even a country, when Amnesty International released its report that identified that there could be potential use of child labor in the production of cobalt, which ultimately ends up in iPhone and other phones, um, it's really led to a global paradigm shift. So Europe, first of all, coughed once again and started enforcing supply chain rules. The US started trying to think about maybe if we can change some of our supply chain laws that ensures that um, there are no child labor affiliated to resources that get into the US or companies listed in the US and so on and so forth. But then change that from somewhere. And I think within this contest that you raised about the battery passport, change would have to start from somewhere to ensure that miners themselves are doing the right thing to the environment, to their emissions, and also being socially responsible for the communities within which they operate. So I think I'm an optimist when it comes to somebody commencing the action. Yes, there could be a case where there will be an initial loss, but then if we see what happened with the cobalt industry and I track data on companies that have started working with artisanal miners 
to ensure that child labor or the cobalt they produce is child labor free. When we look at since the EU started enforcing its laws and also technology starting to become a key part of that conversation, we've seen the amount of companies committing to supporting artisanal miners double or triple in some instances, right, over the last five years. And that shows that one person, one institution, one company, one government policymaker can indeed change the world. And I think that is what Europe is hoping to do that ultimately it would not just be about an European border adjustment scheme or a European passport. But then once America is on board, once China is on board, you have about significant chunk of the whole EV industry. And that begins to move the needle and ensures that miners get it right. That is, yeah, I think that's the key because uh, once you can scale up, uh, you know, any one policy and move it from being uh, one that is confined to original block to one that is adopted by the rest of the world, then of course, uh, all systems go. We have so far spoken about the subject matter from the perspective of sovereign uh, entities, because of course, uh, you know, they lay the, the policy framework, they are the law of the land, but ultimately, uh, in order for us to succeed in this transition to green energy, someone has to be willing to invest in exploring and finding the minerals, extracting them, and somebody else should fabricate the metal substances, and others must then produce the component parts necessary to build cars, batteries, et cetera, et cetera. So I wanted to get a sense from you of what you are seeing in the mining industry. What has been the overall response by mining companies to this surge in demand for what are now known as uh, you know, critical minerals for energy transition? I think um, the world is there. Um, and if you look at major companies like BHP, major companies like Anglo-American, major companies like Glencore, the world is there. This is something they've been doing for only God knows how long, right? Hundreds of years, if not tens. And um, yeah, it's all about just adjusting their portfolio to ensure that they are meeting the demand of the market. But then beyond those major ones, if you start looking at the intermediaries and the juniors, the world is equally there. But then Shilla, what is lacking is, is the point I made when I talked about Saudi money, M-O-N-E-Y, capital invested. And I think um, every year at Bloomberg NEF, <clears throat> sorry, Every year at Bloomberg NEF, we publish a report where we look at the investment trends of the energy transition. In other words, we look at how much money is going into the electric vehicle industry, how much money is going into the battery industry, and most recently, we've started looking at how much money is going into the into the um, the mining industry that are related to the energy transition. And it's quite interesting if you look at the differences across these three sectors, right? So let's start with the, with the electric vehicle industry. You're looking at about, let's say, um, billions of dollars going into the electric vehicle industry, right? If you take a step down into the battery industry, you're looking at equally billions of dollars. But actually, I cannot say same for the mining industry. So the key question is that are these auto companies are these renewable or energy transition focused companies really putting their money where their mouth is? And a big answer is no. 
And it's clearly reflecting in where we see some commodity prices today. And I'll use lithium as an example. Lithium prices have risen from less than $10,000 in 2020, December, to over $70,000. And it's simply because demand is growing because the adoption is not stopping. The adoption for electrical use is not stopping. The supply has not been able to catch up because there has been no investment at the upstream, at the raw material state to ensure that it matches with the expected growth in demand. So yes, the majors can finance mega projects from balance sheets, but then unfortunately the juniors would need support. But now what we're seeing is that there is an imbalance between where capital is going, which is a lot more downstream and very little, if any, into the upstream. And that would potentially affect the whole transition if that does not change now. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting you should say there is not uh, much investment. Uh, it, it would be even more interesting to find out why. Uh, my guess is that, you know, merely classifying minerals critical uh, may boost the demand, but I think miners take a very long-term view of things and perhaps they haven't seen enough change and readiness in the policy space. But it might also be because if you're thinking of manganese, cobalt, if you're thinking of copper, uh, all of which are very essential, the mining industry has already been there. And it's, a, it's simply a case for these minerals, aluminum, platinum, it's really a case of simply ramping up production in most cases. It's not a case of uh, greenfields. Greenfields, I think you will find more in the area of, uh, you know, the, what we call the um, blue minerals, uh, plutonium and those unusual ones, but certainly not uh, the bulk ones. Those are already there. It may be, that's why we don't, but, you know, uh, we will tell. Let me ask you, you know, there are companies and then there are companies. Uh, I made reference to companies, you exemplified the big players and the juniors, and the, these are all very much listed companies or uh, privately owned. What we haven't spoken about are state-owned companies. What of uh, state-owned companies that are in minerals? We have phosphate in uh, Morocco, though not critical, uh, but we also have, uh, others like the DRC in both copper and cobalt that are critical. And then of course, uh, uh, we have state-owned entities, albeit partial in Chile, in the form of Codelco in copper. So are we seeing any difference? Uh, are these the potential Saudi Aramco's of the future? Or do you think in the critical mineral space, the response and the potential impact will be the same regardless of whether a company is state-owned or not. I think um, it will be quite different from the Aramco model because, um, look, and that's what makes mining fun, the complexity of it, right? And I've covered the sector. And if you take a look at the, the oil industry, it's just one commodity, one commodity industry. It's oil or nothing, okay? But then when you come to the metals industry, there's so much diversity. If I attempt to mention the number of metals that are currently being extracted as we speak, I mean, you probably need to give me an extra hour. I don't know if Shilai can afford an extra hour for this podcast or for this episode. 
Certainly not, right? So I think the complexity of the metals industry is what would decide whether companies would go there around Komodo. But then back to your question of the key difference. So I think it, it all comes down to the mandates, right? Particularly in this field. So in theory, there's so much of a difference between an SOE, which is a state um, state organization or state enterprise, and then a, a publicly listed or private company, so to speak. It only comes down to the shareholders, okay? So if you take a publicly listed company or a private company, this mandate by shareholders is that return us return money on our investment. It's as simple as that. So when you have such a mandate, your risk tolerance differs from a company whose mandate from shareholders is simply ensure that you create an, a viable industry, ensure that you create an ecosystem, ensure that stakeholders are able to enjoy prosperity. These mandates are entirely different from a company who has to return investment or provide a return on investment for shareholders. So based on this, the risk appetite is different. And if you look at the DRC, historically, it's been very difficult for private companies outside the DRC to find an entry point because of the perceived risk in the country. So part of that, the government used GECAMIS and its mandate was not necessarily about profit, but then de-risk projects invest in exploration, invest in data acquisition, invest in defining all body, invest in the permitting process. And once all those risks are reduced or eliminated, projects become attractive for other partners to come on board. And if you look at the copper cobalt industry in the DRC, pretty much every project in there with the exception of one or two that are currently in production and are major in terms of outputs have a partnership with GECAMINS with the sole purpose of GECAMINS being able to de-risk all those perceived risks in the DRC and ensuring that they paved their way for these companies to come on board. So I think um, that would be the mandate for SOEs moving on in the battery metal space. If you use Africa as an example or South America, their mandate would be to ensure that they would invest capital in areas that the private sector considered risky. And once those risks are reduced or eliminated, you're able to attract much more funding. And I think um, beyond that, you have the added advantage of obviously returning um, returning capital to the public purse or returning um, dividends to the public purse, among others. But I think in the role or in the context of battery metals, this should be the suggested mandate for for SUEs to de-risk projects so private capital can follow. So you will be possibly aware of uh, the current deal, the the, uh, collaboration between uh, the two large copper producers being uh, the DRC and Zambia. Uh, If you are aware of this, is this potentially the way to go for African countries? Could could this be the kind of new dispensation that could increase, if you wish, the benefits of uh, demand for critical minerals? So I think I have a disclaimer to make to your audience even before I continue. I was the lead author for the report that recommended that for Africa to move up the value chain and to ensure that we invest downstream regional collaboration 
would be very important. And part of the recommendations in that report was that countries that have minerals can work together and collaborate in areas of knowledge sharing. And I think part of that is they setting up a, a research center in Lubumbashi, collaborating on how they deploy capital. And part of that is what you just mentioned, where Zambia, the president of Zambia and the president of, um, of the TRC have both publicly announced that they will work together with the AFRIEXIM and the United Nations Economic Commission for Africa to ensure that both countries develop a battery precursor plan. So yes, I was involved in the report that sort of kick-started that conversation. And I strongly believe that um, there is strength in numbers, particularly if you want to move further downstream. And I think um, there's an African proverb, unfortunately, I don't know the source, but there's an African proverb that goes that like, um, if you want to move very, very fast, you go alone, right? But then if you want to move very, very far, you go together as a team. And I think that applies to if Africa wants to move far further, further downstream on the value chain, then it's good we work together. And then um, the Zambia DRC example is the way to go. The ultimate dream would be for us to leverage the African Free Trade Continental Agreement to ensure that Africa has one voice, not just necessarily from a negotiation standpoint, right? But then from a demand perspective, if we're able to create that local demand for whichever commodity we want to go downstream in, that provides the base for our local industries to produce more to meet domestic demand. And it's that demand that would ensure that from startups, our companies become global champions and then we can take over the world. So yes, I absolutely do agree that in order to move far on the value chain, we need to go together. Absolutely. Here is my uh, last question to you. So we, we've talked at length about the geopolitics of uh, minerals and transition to clean sources of energy. The question I have for you is this um, industrial order, this new approach to industrialization and its impact on mineral production and demand for that matter. Do you think it is fundamental enough to warrant a completely new regulatory philosophy to the ones that we have had uh, post Africa and the rest of the emerging market uh, self-rule? Yeah, so I think um, part of the, if you look at most of the regulatory regimes for mineral extraction across Africa. So I think if you look at one of the trailblazing ones that is mostly referenced across the continent is the one that Ghana enacted, I think in 1986. And that was just after, um, that was just when Ghana was coming out of a military rule. If you look at the DRC one until recently where it was amended, it was enacted, I think somewhere in the early 2000s after the country had come out of war. So if you look at similarly across most African countries, these are uh, policies or regulatory frameworks that were enacted after these economies have come out of really um, dire um, challenges such as war, military rule, or economic downturn. So the, the purpose of those documents were quite different, right? Because like I said earlier about risk, the perceived risk after such instances or after such, um, after such incidents are quite high. So then the mandate of these regulations 
are to attract investment at the least possible risk, okay? Now, most African economies have sustained double-digit growth over the last decade. There's a lot more infrastructure, political maturity, highly skilled labor, and a lot more other, um, <clears throat> other incentives that make Africa a very attractive destination for capital investment, particularly in mining and downstream value attraction. So should countries still depend on these 1986, 1990, 2001 mining policies? I think the big answer, I will leave that to, um, to, to the policymakers to make, but obviously I would say that most of these are not necessarily fit for purpose, right? Because the, the, the conditions back then are obviously not the same today. So what should be the way forward? irrespective of whether the energy transition, um, irrespective of what opportunities the energy transition occurs, I think now the focus of such policies should not just be attract companies or investment by reducing risk to its barest minimum. It will be more of how can we work together to ensure we deliver prosperity for both parties. It could also center on how can we work together to ensure that we go as further downstream as we can. And I think those should be the mandate of these policies and regulations that ultimately come out of this and not necessarily about simply attracting investment for investment's sake. That's fantastic. Well, Kwasi, I enjoyed our conversation and thank you very much for giving me your time. I'm sure the Sheila Kama Extracted podcast listeners will enjoy the conversation I certainly have. Thank you, Sheila.